0: Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time.
1: Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Scurvy Pete, Kane, Kenway, Hefe, Zuman, Nopales, Black Tip, Matthew the Navigator, Mossman, LeChuck, Bull, Vertigon, Canifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Jack Ward, an English navyman turned pirate, and Samuel Palash, a Moroccan pirate turned diplomat, were both on their way to the Barbary States in North Africa in 1603. They had different goals, different lifestyles, different religions, and different backgrounds. However, they were both going to Barbary for similar reasons, and they weren't alone. Almost immediately, following in their footsteps were dozens of other ship captains, merchants, and privateers from England and the Netherlands that all wanted to earn their fortunes. Most of them were Dutch. Simon Danziger, Ivan de Boer, Jan Janszoon, and many others. But there's a reason that they chose the Barbary coast. The Maghreb was... Well, the definitions here are tricky, and it's going to concern us here today. Calling it politically unstable isn't precisely correct, but the Maghreb was less under Ottoman control than it had been in the past, so much so that Algiers, Tunis, and Tripoli were inviting to a bunch of northern European pirates. After the death of Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent, his son took power in Istanbul. Now, his son was a bit less magnificent than the father, The royal palace was a dangerous place to grow up for the son of a sultan, what with the constant threat of assassination, and that provided the sort of upbringing that created spoiled, selfish, and paranoid individuals. Suleiman's son loved women and food, and he rarely made public appearances. He left his grand viziers in charge to run the empire. He only appeared on his Friday processions to the grand mosque. Now his son, Suleiman's grandson, didn't even make those Friday processions, and that was a fairly serious breach of protocol; it angered the court and the people. He likely would have been assassinated if not for living a life behind strong walls and strong doors and strong guards. And then his son, Murad III, the third, the great grandson of Suleiman the Magnificent-well, he was in power when the Maghreb finally slipped away from Ottoman control. The irony here is that he was actually a bit better sultan than his father or grandfather. He actually went out on campaign against the Habsburgs in the Austro-Ottoman War. Now, he was a coward in that war. He nearly surrendered more than once and tried to flee the battlefield on multiple occasions, but he was there. His generals stopped him from doing all of those things, and they were busy leading the army. But it was important for the men to know that their sultan was there, sharing the danger with them. And Murad III made public appearances. He was reasonably secure in his position, so was not as afraid of assassination as his forebears. He was secure in his position because he had an elite force of deaf-mute assassins that killed off 19 of his brothers who may have had a claim for the throne. And he had two other major forces that kept him on the throne. The first was his Grand Vizier, Sinan Pasha. More about him later on but the second was another elite force in the service of the sultan. This time it was a force of European-born Sufi mystics that had been raised specifically to be the greatest warriors in the entire world. They were the arm of the sultan, and they saw through his will, and the threat of this arm of mystic warriors kept the sultan in power many times when he otherwise would have been removed. But it was actually that force that would be the downfall of not only Sinan, the Grand Vizier, and the Sultan, but they would be the instigating force in the explosion in North African piracy that occurred in the 17th century. This is Episode 85, Anarchy in the Maghreb. A few weeks ago I told you about one instance in which Hazir Barbarossa paid his taxes to Suleiman the Magnificent. He had recently captured thousands of Christian slaves on the Italian campaign of 1532 to 1534. And it was slavery that was the primary means through which the Barbary corsairs earned money. The women and girls were sold to harems, mostly in Algiers. The most beautiful were kept for Barbarossa or as gifts to the sultan for his personal harem. And the men were put to work on the galleys to man the oars, that saw endless days of little to no food and backbreaking work. Either one of those fates are the sort of horror that I just can't imagine. But there was another option for those captured slaves. They could convert to Islam. For the men, that would still mean a life of servitude, but usually on land and usually with enough food to eat and in somebody's home rather than a galley. Employing a former Christian European as a servant was seen as a status symbol in the empire, and it was usually reserved for the wealthiest in the land. At one point, there was actually an entire squadron of captured Spanish soldiers that offered to convert, and they were allowed to, believe it or not. They couldn't stay together, they were dispersed all throughout the Ottoman army, they were separated and closely watched, but they were, after their conversion, ostensibly free. Now, the women and the girls had the same option, though their choices after conversion were still very limited. They still had to work in the harems. However, they would receive better wages than they would have as Christian slaves. They were also allowed to marry once they had converted. This was often much the same as slavery, that's true, but it wasn't that much different than Christian Europe at the time. But being a slave to one man and bearing his children would often be preferable to being a slave to many men and having many children without fathers. All around, all of these people had difficult choices to make, but it was a choice that hundreds of thousands of Christian slaves had to face in the 16th and 17th centuries. Those that did convert were called, by the Spanish at least, renegados. It was generally understood that these renegados were forced into their conversion. Any that managed to make it back to Europe were usually, as long as they confessed and came back into the Catholic faith, forgiven completely and welcomed with open arms. There were exceptions, though, and we're going to get to those renegados who would not be welcomed in with open arms. They're going to play a fairly major part in our story moving forward. But Barbarossa, when he paid his taxes to the sultan, didn't pay those taxes with women or girls or grown men. Barbarossa paid his taxes with boys. Those taxes came with bolts of fine silk under their arms, and pouches of perfume at their waists, and a purse of gold around their necks. Now, not every... Ottoman military leaders sent such rich and opulent displays of wealth with their taxes, but every military commander operating on the borders of the Ottoman Empire was expected to send Suleiman a certain number of young boys every year. And they were young, early on at least. They couldn't be any younger than eight by law, but rarely were any of these taxes any older than twelve or thirteen. Whenever an Ottoman army conquered a new territory, they would take a fifth of all the boys there in the age range that fit, and they would be sent back to the Sultan. Now, this was only true of European Christians, so that meant that the vast majority of these slaves were either Slavs or Croats or Armenians or Greeks, though more and more Italians and Spaniards started joining their ranks when the war in the Mediterranean began. Jews and Gypsies were exempted from the law as were only sons, but anyone else of age was a potential target. In fact, if you remember all the way back to Aruj and Hazir as children, their father was a military commander for the Ottomans, and their mother was the widow of a local priest killed in the fighting for their island, and she probably already had children with him. And if they did, they were likely sent to Turkey. I like to imagine at some point in Barbarossa's life, his ear searching down his half-brother to meet him years later. And in newly conquered Ottoman territory, say in Greece or Hungary or the Balkans, one could choose to remain a Christian. However, if you did so, you ran the risk of having your son chosen when he turned eight to sail for Istanbul. Now estimates vary widely here, but somewhere between 30,000 boys and 100,000 boys were sent from Europe to Istanbul during Suleiman's reign. And the practice was much older than Suleiman himself. It was started by his great-grandfather officially, but it reached new heights under Suleiman. Now, in part, that was because he was a more successful conqueror of European lands than any of his forebears were. But it begs the question, what did Suleyman want with all of these thousands and thousands of young boys? What did he do with them? Well... At first, they were brought to Istanbul, where they were carefully examined and placed into a specialized school there on the palace grounds. And that school had three primary jobs. First, it would teach the boys to speak and read and write Turkish. Second, it would teach them the basic tenets of Islam. And third, it would show them that while there could be a hard discipline for any boy that rebelled or stepped out of line or questioned authority, boys that behaved themselves would be well rewarded. And when these three jobs were done, usually by fourteen or fifteen, these boys were sent back to the sultan. Usually in groups of several hundred at a time, a graduating class, the sultan would stand before them and address them, and then he would personally perform a sacred ceremony. See, these boys weren't given the same choice that those women and girls and men had, they were required to convert to Islam. Now the ceremony was a beautiful ceremony, and not just anyone in the empire would have the honor of a personal blessing of the conversion from the sultan. When the ceremony was completed, the boys were given a scarf that they would wrap up into a turban. They were given slippers, ceremonial slippers, and a scimitar. That scimitar was A ceremonial weapon, but it was of the finest Damascus steel and could kill easily. And with that steel in hand, the boys were declared men. Men who belonged to the sultan, but they would be among the most privileged and powerful people within the Ottoman Empire. They were called Janissaries. After the ceremony was over, they were officially Janissaries, but not yet ready to serve in the Janissary Corps. The boys were separated, and there was actually a fourth job at that school I didn't mention. They were to gauge where the boys might best fit in the academy to which they were being prepared. That academy had two branches, sort of a college or maybe a graduate school. The first was for the soldiery, and the boys chosen for that branch were sent to different academies within it archery or artillery or musketeering, but by the time of Suleiman, archery was long gone and most of them were musketeers. And they replaced the archery class with an engineering corps, siege engineers, using gunpowder. That was a large part of what the Janissary did. They were the gunpowder class of soldiers within the Ottoman army, which made them extremely powerful. The second branch, not the soldiery branch, was for those boys who were somewhat gifted. Many of them were bound for the officer corps in the Janissary. They were trained not in the use of firearms or artillery, but in strategy and tactics. They were trained to inspire and to lead men. While Europe was still busy choosing their military leadership based upon who had the richest father with the greatest name, the Ottomans were building an elite Spartan military whose leadership was based entirely on merit— They faced years of rigorous training and observation, and then they had to rise through the ranks of the officer corps in a meritocracy. Is it any wonder that they usually won in battles with the Europeans? Now, these officers are going to concern us greatly today, but before we get to that, there was a third class of Janissaries, who will concern us less, but I want to mention them. They were the particularly gifted and intelligent among the boys captured, They were sent not to the academy, not to be soldiers, not to be officers, but to the home of one or another of a number of families within the empire. They were invariably the homes of rich men with kind wives and usually with beautiful daughters. See, the people in these homes were specially chosen, and to be chosen was a great honor and a serious responsibility. They were tasked with caring for the sultan's most precious possessions, the brightest and most intelligent Janissaries he had. They had to be specially licensed and trained in how to teach these young men. And in those homes they were taught the intricacies of Ottoman civilization. Now your average Janissaries knew a fair bit about that, but they weren't taught in-depth details about every aspect of the Ottoman world. But these brightest young men, well, they were taught about Turkish and Arabian and Egyptian and Levantine and Greek and Berber, Everyone within the Ottoman Empire, they learned about their culture and customs, and they were taught languages as well. They usually knew Greek and or Latin and possibly Hebrew. They were taught mathematics and science. They were taught international politics and all about the European world as well. And they were taught how to rule. See, the Sultan had a problem. He had a huge empire at his beck and call, and that had a very varied population. They all served him, for the most part, but with that huge and varied population came many, many powerful people, and powerful people tend to want things. Suleiman and the sultans that followed had Arabian warlords and Turkic nobles and Hungarian princes and Egyptian generals, and they all had ideas about how things should be done, not to mention the Corsairs on the Barbary coast who were busy doing things their own way. And whenever any of these princes or generals got into positions of power, they always schemed and plotted. Usually they did so along cultural lines. The Egyptians would work toward Egyptian interests, the Greeks would work toward Greek interests, and so on and so forth. Arabians would tend to fall into fighting with the Turks. They had some bad blood there. Greeks would fight with the Armenians for similar reasons. And whenever one of them rose to the rank of vizier, or even grand vizier, things would only get worse. Assassinations became all too common. If a Greek person became a vizier, then somebody from Armenia certainly didn't want to see them working in the interests of Greece instead of Armenia. This was a problem for the Sultan. Government was coming to a standstill because these men couldn't work together. So for his solution, he turned to that pool of tens of thousands of young men, ranked by merit and trained from boyhood, to be able and adept and loyal personally to him. By the time of Suleiman, the sultan was choosing his viziers almost exclusively from the janissary class. And who would dare, what person in the empire would dare assassinate the sultan's own property, So before long, every minister, ambassador, major official, and vizier within the empire was a former Janissary. And you really never stopped being a Janissary. They just got a new job. This changed the culture in the empire, though. Where once mothers had disfigured their sons by taking an eye or a hand from them whenever the Ottomans invaded to keep the Ottomans from taking them away... Now they actively bribed Ottoman soldiers to take their sons. They knew that at least they would receive an education, and then they would have the potential of becoming a powerful man, and even if they weren't that powerful, they would be respected and paid quite handsomely. See, the Janissaries were paid a salary, and not a small salary, not the sort of pittance you would usually expect for a slave, even a slave that a master highly valued. Beyond that, they were promised a pension upon retirement, and these weren't empty promises. They received them. The Janissary lived luxurious lives. They were apart from, and in many ways, above the citizenry. Now, it wasn't all milk and honey for them. They were stolen away from their families, forced to endure years of hard training, and then they had to face the possibility of a violent death in warfare, and they had a few other restrictions and distinctions placed upon them. First of all, Janissaries wore special clothing. Anybody that saw that clothing knew that the person wearing it was a Janissary. Any non-Janissary who was caught wearing an outfit that was even too close to their garb would face punishment. Then the Janissaries shaved. They had to shave, unlike most Muslims. This, once again, set them apart and they followed that form of Islamic mysticism called Sufism. This gave them an air of, well, I don't know that the people who followed typical Ottoman Islam respected the Sufis, but they may have seen them as somewhat dangerous wizards carrying firearms who were unpredictable, powerful, and placed above them.
0: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a Ph.D. in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story.
1: They couldn't marry either, at least not until later on in the 17th century, but they could have children, and they did have children, they had lots of children. Janissaries were provided with special harems, wherever they were located, that were filled with some of the most beautiful women from every corner of the empire. Remember when I said that the most beautiful among the women and girls captured by Barbarossa would be, well, some saved for him, and the rest sent on to the sultan? The sultan didn't need all of those women for himself, he gave them to his janissaries. And the women that were chosen for those harems for the Janissaries were, well, beautiful, yes, first of all, but they had their own merit-based system to get into those harems. They had to be intelligent and clever and witty and empathetic and funny and kind. They lived their own sorts of luxurious lives, not unlike the Janissaries, They were well-fed from the best cooks. They had the best doctors available. And they had quarters that were finer than most others in the Ottoman Empire. And there were even rules of conduct for the Janissaries within the walls of the harems. Any woman that was mistreated by a Janissary would face harsh punishment, usually from one of their Janissary brothers or many of them, for reasons that will soon become clear. You see, these women were the Sultan's property as well and their children would be, well, not, not ripped away from their mother's bosom, but they would also be the sultan's property, and they would be groomed for, well, usually for positions of influence and power. If they were male, they would grow up to be janissaries, and if they were female, they would grow up to inhabit one of these harems. Now, the janissaries could not marry any of these women, but they had houses full of lovely women who were clever and funny and kind, whom they could love, both physically but emotionally as well, and they could bear children. So when one of their brothers decided to mistreat one of these women, they came down hard on him. There's a strange... Well, I'm not really sure how to interpret these roles. The Janissaries and the women in the harems, they were property, but they were deeply respected property who stood societally above, many of the people on the lowest rungs of civilization, people who were not property, people who were free, even people who were landowners stood below many of them, and they lived lives of opulence and luxury, but they had no freedom. I don't know how I would feel in that situation, but the Janissary Corps were shaped into a true ruling class. They were the Sultan's arm in every corner of the empire. Every city of reasonable size had a garrison of elite Janissary Corps. And they were, yeah, the military backbone, but they were something more. They were the executors of the Sultan's will. See, the Janissary were above local laws wherever they were based. The local laws would not always be national Ottoman laws. There were laws that were specific from city to city, but the Janissary did not have to abide by those laws. They answered only to the Sultan, never to a pasha or a governor. But what happens when you give an elite force of specialized troops preferential treatment in the law? What happens when you tell them they are above regular subjects and give them virtually unlimited power in your name? Well, you have to keep an eye on them. When you give a bunch of 18-year-old boys guns and women and power, you have to remind them from time to time that all of those guns and women and power derive from you. Without you, they would not have these things. Or they might just get it into their heads to take that power and the women and the guns away from you. And that's what happened to Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent's great-grandson, Murad III, in 1591 in the city of Tunis on the North African coast. The grandeur of the office of sultan had been on the wane for many years, ever since the death of Suleiman. but the power of the Ottoman Empire had been on the decline as well. Not in Europe so much, they were doing quite well, but on North Africa, especially in Tunis and Tripoli and Algiers, Well, the corsairs had organized themselves into autonomous guilds outside of the Ottoman sphere of influence, and far too frequently, for the governor or the pasha's comfort, they began to go their own way. They started capturing ships of any non-Muslim nation, regardless of war or peace or whatever the treaty status with them was. This was causing diplomatic headaches for the sultan and the bays and pashas in those cities, To make matters worse, the sultan instituted a one-year term on all pashas in Tripoli and Algiers and Tunis. Essentially, he kept them from being rulers and made them short-term administrators with very little real power. Instead, he leaned more and more on the janissaries in those cities. He made their commanders virtual leaders in those cities. Now, there was a rule that every one of the Corsair ships sailing out of one of those Barbary cities had to carry a squadron of Janissary warriors, and their commander outranked even the ship's captain, the Rais. But then, in 1591, the garrison at Tunis mutinied. They alleged that they had declining conditions within the garrison. There was mistreatment from their officers, and the pay that they were supposed to be receiving was non-existent. So they killed or kicked out every man in command, and they elected a brand new commander. They called this office something new. They called him a day, which is Turkish for maternal uncle. It's a position of great respect and power. The day became the military dictator of Tunis overnight. The sultan tried to intervene a few weeks later, but he was powerless to stop this mutiny. At first, it seemed, though, that the problem might just solve itself. The day that the janissary elected couldn't hold the garrison together. He didn't have the skills or the will to do so, and he was kicked out of power. So they elected a new day, and he had the same problems with slightly different variations. Every few months, they would kick out a day and elect someone new, This went on for seven years, with no stability in Tunis, at least in the halls of power, until in 1598 a young janissary named Uthman was elected, and he had what it took to lead. There was something in Uthman day of Barbarossa or Sinan Rais or Dragut. He was a capable administrator. That's more important than it sounds in a lot of cases, but beyond that, he was well-loved by the people. Islamic scholars throughout the centuries have characterized his rule as one of peace and prosperity and plenty, although Islamic chroniclers of the Ottoman Empire at the time did not. European scholars, on the other hand, have characterized his rule as a satanic reign of terror defined only by the new singular state industry of Tunis, piracy. And Tunis did become a haven for corsairs. With the day in control of the city, the sultan was powerless to stop the corsairs from doing as they pleased. And Uthman Day was less inclined to stop them. Now the sultan sent pasha after pasha year after year to Tunis, but if even one of them worked against the will of the janissary leader of Uthman Day, he would usually slip and fall while getting out of bed and break his neck, or perhaps he would get on board a ship that would mysteriously sink in five feet of water. Uthman De made it clear that he was the power in Tunis, and he worked closely with the Corsairs. He kept that rule about a Janissary Corps on board every vessel. They still technically outranked the Ra'is, but since they were working together, usually that worked out for everyone involved. The crews and the captains made money, the Janissaries took their cut, which they often used as taxes to rule the city, and the people had new goods to buy and goods to sell, and the slave markets in Tunis were booming. The people there were starting to get rich on the backs of Catholic gold and Catholic slaves, thanks to the pirates and the Janissaries. So, by 1600, Tunis was effectively independent from Istanbul, and it was the Corsair Haven on the Barbary coast. Adrian Tenniswood writes in Pirates of Barbary that piracy was woven, quote, "...so deeply into the fabric of Tunisian society that it was a major state industry," The state industry as it was turning out to be for smaller maritime nations all over the Mediterranean. Unable or unwilling to compete with the big trading powers like Spain, France, or the Venetian Republic, such states turned privateering into a mainstream commercial activity. End quote. Tunis was the most independent of the North African port cities, at least for now. It was making the most money off of the corsairs as well. It was the first to drift away from Istanbul, but the others were beginning to pull away from the Sultan as well. Tripoli was the first to start to slip away. It was too prime a location for raiding Italian ships not to do so. The Corsairs wanted it as a base of operations. But Algiers was the oldest center of Ottoman power on the North African coast. Aruj and Hazir Barbarossa had used it as their capital. The Ottomans held out there, they wanted to hold on to it, but it would eventually follow suit. Now, the Sultan would claim it as his territory until the French invasion of Algiers in the 19th century, but he would never effectively control it again. Now, there's an author with whom I have some fundamental disagreements. The author in question here tends to play fast and loose with historical data, and they could only be called a historian with the broadest possible definition. This author has a clear and present bias. It goes beyond bias. It's oftentimes manipulating the facts to fit and push an ideology. Now, normally, under normal circumstances, I would be happy to disclose that fact and my disagreements with the said author, and I would share their viewpoints in the name of discussion, But this author has practiced and advocated for some truly reprehensible activities. So I am going to refrain from either naming the author or the book. However, the viewpoint that this author puts forth is still worth mentioning. In the book, which shall not be named, the author quotes the 1953 edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica and their entry on Barbary pirates. It reads, The coast cities of Algeria and Tunisia, though nominally forming parts of the Turkish Empire, were in fact anarchical, military republics which chose their own rulers and lived by plunder. The maritime side of this long-lived brigandage was conducted by captains, or raises, who formed a class or even a corporation. Cruisers were fitted out by capitalists, and the treasury of the Pasha received 10% of the value of the prizes. End quote. Now, that entry is dated, but it does raise a few questions, and the reason I brought up that author in the first place is because their response to that 1953 Encyclopedia Britannica entry does give us a unique perspective. The author calls themselves an anarchist now most real anarchists would probably dispute that claim and disown the author from anarchism many of them have written papers articles and essays about this particular person and how they in no way represent the views of anarchism so i want that out there in front but this author who considers himself an anarchist responds to that encyclopedia britannica entry quote two interesting political terms are used here Anarchical and Capitalists, which may not be quite appropriate. Capitalist sounds too 18th, 19th century to describe the merchants and ship-owning captains who fueled the economy of the Corsair states. Moreover, I presume the author, when he uses the term anarchical, is simply brandishing this word to indicate violent disorder. Eurocentric historians give us an impression of Algiers as a kind of ravening horde in a state of perpetual arousal. End quote. Now, I disagree with the author almost immediately about their analysis on the word capitalist. The encyclopedia was using an anachronistic term, but when they say capitalist, they don't mean somebody who operates within a system of capitalism. They meant a person with money that invests that said money to make more money. A person that uses their capital to earn income is a capitalist. But then the word anarchical, or anarchist in modern usage, well, that does raise questions. Tunis was, by any measure, by 1600, an independent state. The sultan called them a sultanate, in that they had a leader, a pasha or a bey, who was in charge. But the pasha or the bey was appointed by the sultan, and they weren't really in charge in Tunis. Tunis was ruled by the dey, the janissary leader, ...and they were governed by a council of merchants and corsair captains. So, it wasn't anarchist. It was almost democratic. Not not a republic and not representative, nothing that we might recognize today as democratic... ...but the city was governed on their day-to-day business and even some of the bigger issues... ...by a certain class of the people. They voted on all of the major decisions and they had slaves and women that could not vote, and the poor couldn't vote, of course, and, in fact, anyone that didn't own property wasn't allowed to vote in these, and that excluded Christians from it. Okay, democratic might not be the right word, but there was a certain level of self-rule for people who owned ships and or shops and or land. So, doesn't that wind up looking quite a lot like the early United States? 175 years or so before anyone in British North America even thought about revolution. And, you know, much later we're going to see the founders, the United States founders, spending a lot of money and resources on diplomatic relations with North Africa. They're doing so in combating pirates. I'm looking forward to talking about some of that. But Thomas Jefferson famously read the Koran, and he argued for the rights of Muslims within the U.S. He criticized Islam. He wasn't a fan. He equated it to Catholicism in many ways, saying that both of them stifled freedom of expression and religion. But he saw, well, he saw value in a freedom of religion, first of all, but he also saw value in the Muslim world. Maybe he saw some shared values, at least from the North African Muslim world. After all, it was a Muslim North African nation that was the very first nation in the world to recognize the independence, the statehood of the brand new United States of America. And I wonder if there isn't something there, if it wasn't because they saw shared values in a certain sort of democratic process and in a freedom from the monarchy. Now, all of that is way off topic, but that just keeps working its way into my mind. For now though, it wasn't just Tunis that was leaving the Ottoman Empire behind. By 1601-1602, Algiers and Tripoli were well on their way. They were on the same trajectory, they just didn't have a dramatic mutiny of their Janissary Legion to mark the day it happened. They were actually in some ways perhaps even more democratic than Tunis. Tripoli and Algiers had their guilds of corsairs, but they had way more power, Than Tunis, where Uthman Day was really running the show. We're going to see a lot of English and Dutch pirates immigrate to these port cities, along with Sephardi Jews. England and the United Provinces well, first of all, they would both become homes and havens and centers of power for the Sephardi Jewish exiles. But they also, England and the United Provinces both, had something of an alliance with the Ottoman Empire. Queen Elizabeth, during the war with Spain, sent iron and lumber to Istanbul, and the Dutch sent, well, not so much iron or lumber, but they did send a little bit of money and friendly relations. Nothing was ever as official here as the Franco-Ottoman alliance was, but Spain and the Habsburg Empire were such a threat to everyone who wasn't them that I think England and the Netherlands took on an enemy of my enemy policy. However, they were not allied with Algiers or Tunis. They were allied with the Ottoman Empire. And while the Dutch Republic and their rich white men may have had some sympathies with the almost semi-democratic leanings of the Maghreb, we can be certain that the Queen of England did not. Nor did her successor, as it turned out. But those English and Dutch pirates that went there to the Maghreb, I wonder if they picked up any bad habits in Algiers or Tunis. Did they learn things that the Queen of England might not have wanted them to learn in Tripoli or in the Moroccan city of Salih? Now We haven't talked about Salih yet, but it was even less under national control than Tunis. It was a fully independent city. Did those pirates, those primarily English and Dutch pirates, did they take some of those inclinations towards self-determination to the New World? Did some of them take it back to England where they were well on their way to a civil war? See, a lot of these pirates who are going to get their start, not the main players, but people who were on board the ships of the main players, a lot of the pirates who got their start here in the Mediterranean would wind up sailing west to raid Spanish shipping in the West Indies. They would establish bases on the Spanish Main and in the Bahamas. Now, we're not talking about Tortuga or Port Royal, and, well, Nassau was actually started by them, but it wasn't a pirate haven quite yet. But they lived as free people. The pirate culture in the New World included such radical ideas as voting and a disdain for monarchy and a tendency toward what 1953 editions of the Encyclopedia Britannica might call an anarchic system. And it might actually have been a bit more anarchic than what the author, who shall not be named, considered that Encyclopedia Britannica entry. But the maritime culture of English and Dutch North America was seminal to many of the beliefs of the American revolutionaries and the founders of the United States. How much of a role pirate culture played is very debatable and has been debated a lot. But it had to play some sort of role. They changed the way that people on board ships behaved and nobody will deny the maritime influence on that culture. And if that is the case how much connection could be drawn between the pirates that at one point inhabited the Maghreb, the English and Dutch pirates who may have picked up some bad democratic ideas, and the mostly English people that would go on to found the U.S. Now, I'm not prepared to make any bold statements about this. There are a number of deep foundational differences between the two systems, between the system in the Maghreb and the system in the Thirteen Colonies. And the world was already changing regardless of this fact. There was, well, a sea change going on, if you'll forgive the pun, that was moving away from autocracy and towards democracy. I think that the Protestant Reformation and scientific advances and geographic challenges that had to be overcome had probably more to do with it than half a dozen or so Barbary Corsairs who made their way from the Mediterranean to the New World. But I am also not prepared to say that there was no connection. But that's something we're going to explore in the weeks to come. But now that we have this stage set, we can get back to the characters who are going to drive this story next time we're going to follow john ward to the maghreb and we're going to introduce an old friend and a new player as well as the origin of who might be the most famous fictional pirate i'd like to thank everybody for listening i'd also like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show everybody who has signed up to become a patron on patreon everybody who has left us a review or a rating wherever it is you listen to the show everybody who has given us a shout out online or in real life without all of you i couldn't do this so thank you our theme music was as always the old captain by the fantastic band brillig If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at PirateHistoryPodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.